Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The people were amazed at his teaching. We sometimes miss the fact that Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher. But unlike most of the rabbis of his day, Jesus traveled around to various places and went there to teach. But where did he usually go first? He usually went to the synagogue in whatever town he visited. This became the practice of the apostles in the early church as well, especially St. Paul. As a well-educated Pharisee, Paul would have had a great deal of credibility with the Jews that he was trying to convert. And so he made the synagogues his first stop. They would usually at least listen and hear him out, even if eventually they would reject the message of the Gospel that he proclaimed. The synagogue was the place of worship for the Jews in those days. It was where they went to hear the Word of God. They would sing psalms. They would hear readings from what we now call the Old Testament. And they would listen as the rabbi expounded on some point from the Torah or the law. In fact, the roots of our worship service today, that is the, the service of the Word as we call it, the first half of our service, is actually very similar in content, or rather in form, although not quite in content, with what the Jews did in the synagogue. And so it is that Jesus, as He traveled around Galilee, ended up going to Capernaum. He went into the synagogue, and at the proper time, he, as a rabbi, began to teach. But there was something different about this man, about this teacher. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. What were they so amazed about? What made the teacher teaching of this carpenter turned rabbi so very, very different? Well, there's one word in our text that unlocks how this came to be. Jesus taught as one who had authority. Now when we think of authority today, we oftentimes think of it in negative terms. Authority is about someone having power over you. About someone trying to oppress you or keep you down. Maybe that's what we've inherited from the 60s, an anti-authoritarian outlook on life. We all want to be in charge of our own lives and our own decisions. Order is bad. Freedom to do what we feel and what we think and what we want. Now, that's pretty good, we think. But Jesus taught as one who had authority. And from where did this authority come? You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Remember those words? Those are the words that the Father spoke to Jesus at His baptism in the Jordan River. How about, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Those are words that will be spoken later in Jesus' ministry at His transfiguration. In both instances, the Father established Jesus' authority as one who spoke for Almighty God. Indeed, indeed Jesus is the image of God Himself. So when Jesus spoke, He spoke with authority. His words are those of the Creator of heaven and earth. In our Old Testament lesson today, we hear that the Lord would raise up a prophet who was like Moses, 
but who would speak the words of Almighty Yahweh, who would convey His will to the people. Jesus is that prophet, for He knows the will of the Father perfectly. He is the messenger of the Lord, and He came to earth to preach that message. And what was that message that Jesus spoke? You heard it last week in our Gospel lesson. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Jesus called them to be turned away from their path of sin and death, to be made alive in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the message which Jesus spoke that was so amazing to these people at Capernaum. They lived in a time that, although it was not as technologically advanced, was not so unlike our own. That is, many believed in their day that if you just followed a certain code, if you do certain things, then God will be pleased with you and you will be saved. So there came to be a constant argument and squabbling about particular points of the law. How many steps can I take on the Sabbath? Which kind of foods are we to eat? How should I dress? Their life was defined by their behavior. In many ways, the focus had moved away from the God who had brought them out of both Egypt and Babylon, the God of Gospel and of grace. They had turned the Lord into a God of law and legality who carefully watched what they did to make sure that they did the right things. We shouldn't be so hard on them for we often do the same thing. Pop Christianity today would define the Christian life as basically being about behavior too. Almost a hundred years ago, a man named Charles Sheldon wrote a book called In His Steps. Maybe you've read the book. At least you may have heard of it. In this book, Sheldon recalls the story of a town which tried to answer that question that we often even hear today. What would Jesus do before they did anything? And in the book, this town became a, a little slice of heaven where everyone was nice to each other and kind and honest and friendly. If that's not fiction, I don't know what is. Many people in Christianity today, though, would have us make that sort of environment and that behavior into what it means to be Christian. Although it's faded a little bit in recent years, it was all the rage not that long ago. It generated t-shirts and bumper stickers and bracelets asking that question that Sheldon posed in his book. What would Jesus do? In this mode of thinking, being a Christian is primarily doing good things, essentially the keeping of the law. So to this way of looking at Christianity, it is a religion of works. Deeds, not creeds, is another motto that you hear often today. God doesn't want your belief, it says. He wants you to do good things. Could there be anything more wrong? More diametrically opposed to the teachings of the Scripture? Anything that runs harder against the grain of whoever believes in Him will be saved. Against, by grace you have been saved through faith, not because of works. It's a very sneaky, very horrible trick that Satan is playing against us when this so-called deeds, not creeds faith comes up. Because every real Christian knows that God demands perfection in your deeds. Even in your thoughts and your words, for that matter. So then, measuring our faith by our works is very, very risky indeed. 
And it's a very hard existence trying to let go of ourselves and doing it ourselves and letting God be gracious to us. You are in Christ, and you are to dwell in Him. And so your actions do have significant effects on those around you, particularly your family, your friends, your co-workers, and your fellow church members. How often have you caused fellow Christians to stumble when you decided that you had something more important to do on a Sunday morning than to have your sins forgiven? When others have looked around and maybe asked themselves, I wonder where so-and-so has been. I haven't seen him or her or that family in worship very often lately. And what have we conditioned ourselves and our children to think if we have repeatedly shown them and even convinced ourselves that what you give to God is the last thing on the bill-paying schedule, the leftovers, if any. Our actions then can certainly become a stumbling block for the weak, particularly those in our own families. And Satan knows that. And so he either tries to puff you up to revel in how great a Christian you are, or he tries to drive you to despair because of what a failure you are in your Christian life. When the focus is taken away from Christ and put on what you do, you are left with that terrible plaguing question, is it enough? Have I done enough? Have I been friendly enough? Have I helped others enough? Have I done enough to get me into heaven? That's a terrible existence. There is no certainty in that way of life. There are only questions. For the answer to that question and all of them like it is simple. No, you haven't done enough. You can never do enough because you are a sinner that can never please God if left to your own devices. As St. Paul wrote in our epistle lesson today, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. If it were true that Christianity is finally about keeping the law, then it would no longer be about Christ. And that was what was so amazing about Jesus' teaching. These poor Jews were living under the oppression of the law. They believed that if they obeyed certain laws, they would be saved. It wasn't true for them back then, and it isn't true for us now. It's almost as if Jesus was saying, get over yourself. You don't know what you're doing, so stop. Stop pretending that you do. You can't save yourself. Only I can save you. And almost as if to demonstrate His point, Jesus has an encounter with a man who is encumbered and possessed by an evil spirit. This evil spirit, this demon, had possessed this poor man. He knew who Jesus was. And so he cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon, this fallen angel who was sent only to destroy and to kill, even that demon knows who Jesus is. He knows and he is afraid for this demon thinks that Jesus has come to destroy him. And he's right. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, God had promised that the offspring of Eve would crush Satan's head while Satan would bruise his heel. God was talking then about Jesus, the one who came to destroy Satan at the cost of his own life. This demon demonstrates that knowing the right information is not enough. There are plenty of people who know about Jesus, 
They can give you facts and figures and probably even tell you his whole life story. But without faith, it is all for nothing. The demon knew who Jesus was, but he had no faith. He did not trust God as the giver of all good things, and so his life was one of a cursed existence where all he could do was to lash out and to try to destroy others. So Jesus says to the demon, Be quiet! Come out of him! So the demon left with a shriek and a violent shake. Both Jesus' teaching and His actions that day were amazing. For they showed Him to be the Son of God, the Holy One of God, as the demon called Him. And this Holy One of God came to earth for a purpose. As we confess it in the Creed, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Jesus did not come down to earth to try to teach us how to live better lives. He didn't even come down to earth to make us happy all the time. No, Jesus came down to earth for one and one purpose only. His purpose-driven life was that He came to give us salvation. He came to crush Satan's head and to buy us back. To redeem us from the crafts and the assaults of the devil by His own death on the cross. And this place... St. Paul is the place where he continues to destroy Satan for you. In the church, every time there's a baptism, the power of Satan is trampled underfoot and the kingdom of God comes down to earth to reign in the heart of a new child of God. We had a baptism last Sunday. And the angels rejoiced with us while the demons shrieked and trembled. When there is repentance and faith in your confession and a declaration of His forgiveness and the absolution, the power of God's active and creative Word accomplishes His purposes once again. And when He comes to you in His own supper, as He will once again today, His body and His blood is given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. You're pledging. You're financial giving. You're serving on boards and committees and groups and events in all of your work on behalf of God's kingdom here at St. Paul, these things are not done for your benefit. They aren't actions that you can do yourself to put yourself in better standing with God. In fact, they aren't even actions that can be done to benefit God. He doesn't need them and He isn't going to be affected or impressed by them. If you're going to do them out of selfish motives or out of guilt or to try to impress others, then you're on the wrong path. Rather, your giving and your serving are to have their roots in the same soil as the giving and the serving of your Lord and your Savior, sprouted and growing up out of no other seed than pure love. Now, you and I, we don't have that pure love. We know that, of course. And so we must realize it and continually repent of the worldly and selfish and Yes, even demonic motives that taint our giving and our serving. But the Holy Spirit will not let us slip totally into the abyss of selfishness where we do nothing at all. Nor into the spiritual minefield of doing it all for the wrong or for self-serving reasons. The Holy Spirit will lead you, if you let Him, to the right thoughts, the right answers, the right numbers and the right actions. 
if you surrender yourself to God's will, His Word that you have heard and the Spirit that was given to you first in holy baptism will shape you and it will guide you. And then you won't ask the question, what would Jesus do? But rather, what would Jesus have me do? He will show you. Not for your salvation, of course, for we can contribute nothing to that. And not for God, for the Lord of heaven and earth already has power and dominion over all things. No, you will do it for those in the world and for those in our community who still need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, incarnate, born, suffering, dying, and rising again for them and for their salvation. You will do it for your brothers and sisters in this congregation who, like you, need to be continually reminded of God's love. We who regularly need to receive His gifts of faith and forgiveness, strength and encouragement. You do it for your family so that they have a place to receive these same gifts, to learn what faith and what sacrifice and what love of others looks like, so that together as Christ's church, we can carry God's message to your grandchildren and to future generations not yet imagined, much less born. You can't do it all yourself, but you can do something. It's never enough because there is no perfect response to God's perfect love. No adequate response to His infinite giving. But it's a start. We give of what has been given to us, each according to what God has given us in His wisdom. We just have to set aside the fear and the doubt and embrace the confidence and the faith that being bound to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through baptism has given us. Jesus does not want you to ask, have I given enough? Served enough? Done enough? The answer to that is always no. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. But Jesus bridges the gap of our helplessness and our shortcomings for us. Laying His own body and His blood as a span of life across our chasm of sin and death and despair. He connects us to His Father to life, to heaven. Jesus wants you to receive all that He gives to you, for He has done enough. He has come into our flesh to be our Savior. And He gives you that very gift of life and salvation now, here, today, in the house of God. When you receive His body and His blood for your healing, you are made one with Christ and with His Father and with the Holy Spirit again and again one with your brothers and your sisters in this congregation, and one with the church of all times and all places. Satan cannot overcome the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. It is here that all of your fears and your shortcomings are set at the foot of the cross, are cleansed by the water of life. Satan has no place in your life. As the words of our opening hymn tell us, Jesus has come and brings pleasure eternal. Let Him come to you, bringing His teaching once again. And may you be amazed by the wonder of it. His authority comes from the Father above to bring you forgiveness, to bring you life everlasting. In His holy name, Amen.